villains are responsible for all kinds of machinations on the opera stage, and the victims express their pain and suffering in some of opera's greatest arias. So who are some of the great singers behind these characters? Find out on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Often in opera, victims pour out their heartbreak in song. On the other hand, successfully bringing a villain to life on the opera stage also takes a special kind of artistry. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have Met Radio commentator Ira Siff with part one of his Villains and Victims live lecture series from this past season. Good morning, and uh, thank you all for coming. Um, So we're going to start today a three-part series on uh, villains and victims in opera. And, uh, you know, opera plots have emotionally engaged us, left us verklempt, watching the inevitable demise of a beloved character at the hands of a villain bent on the destruction of one sort or another. the earliest opera librettos, beginning in 1597 with uh, Ottavio Rinucini's Daphne, set to music by Jacopo Peri, were court entertainments. And uh, as a commemoration of the event, the words were printed in a, uh, a little book, or libretto, diminutive of libro, meaning book. In 1630s, Venetian opera became a public spectacle, and audiences used printed librettos to follow the drama. They didn't have supertitles in those days. The early 17th century librettists drew their subject matter from pastoral drama of the 16th century, which dealt with mythological subjects, as in Alessandro Strigio's libretto for Orfeo, 1607, and that was set to music by Monteverdi. Other trends soon developed. In 1642, John Francesco Businello based his libretto for Monteverdi's L'Incarnazione di Popea on subjects from actual history, the actual life of Nero. And from that point on, historical subjects became increasingly popular. While they appealed to the common people by the inclusion of love intrigues that were required not to necessarily reflect actual historical facts, Historical librettos that portrayed magnanimous uh, rulers flattered the aristocracy, like we have Clemenza di Tito across the street running right now at the Met. And these, of course, were very important because it was the aristocracy who financed opera. Uh, 18th century opera, Syria drew on mythological as well as historical subjects, but also favored the singers. The music started to cater to the stars, the castrati in those days, the castratos were like rock stars, the prima donnas, and they competed with each other. There were even feuds in the lobby at Covent Garden during Handel's opera, fist fights uh, between the partisans of one or the other. Those were the days. But uh, these operas that were so exceedingly favorable to the singers sometimes were not as clear dramatically. And so Gluck took it upon himself with his librettist to reform opera and to try to uh, rid it of vocal ornamentation and wild stage machinery for its own sake and replace that with a through-line drama that held on to the audience in a different way. In contrast to serious operas, comic operas had always dealt with the lives of kind of real people. And this began to change with Mozart and operas like The Marriage of Figaro, Cosi Fan Tutte, which dealt with real people in a quasi-comic vein, kind of what he would call drama giocoso, a comic drama. Um, Beethoven's Fidelio, 
was an example of another trend in operas, rescue operas, which showed the triumph of those victimized over the tyranny victimizing them. 19th century librettos reflected the Romantic era and that sensibility, often there were highly strung heroes and fragile heroines being wrongly treated, or historical characters in a semi-fictional love triangle, like Donizetti's Three Queens operas. In Verdi's operas, the lines became a bit blurrier as to characters being drawn as purely good or purely evil. Wagner, of course, as we are seeing across the street, had his heroes and his villains, and then the Verismo operas, both French and Italian Verismo, gave us more contemporary figures being victims, but victims of society. This Met season has had a generous helping of villains and their victims, kicking off the season with Delilah costing Samson both his strength and his lovely hair, Mephistopheles costing the uh, innocent Margarita her life, the moral free Principessa de Bouillon killing Adriana Lecouvre with poison violets, Swore Angelica's icy aunt causing her suicide. We had Iago, Alberic, Hagen, Don Giovanni's there right now. So is Vitalia. They all add evil and color to the season. In this season and the following two, sorry, in this session and the following two, we're going to look at some of opera's great villains and their victims as portrayed by some of opera's great singers from the dawn of recordings to the present. Early operatic composers such as Monteverdi weren't bound by the need that, let's say, Handel had to really show off the singer's voices. Formal musical structures of arias and so forth at that point hadn't developed in that direction. And in L'Incoronazione di Popea, it's the nature of each character's music that clearly defines that character. Nerone and Popea have music that's more decadent and sensual, while Ottone is noble and Nerone's betrayed empress, Ottavia, sings in a sort of melodic recitative of enormous dramatic power. Filled with rage, filled with heartbreak, filled with dignity, the role of Ottavia is now usually defined as mezzo-soprano, but in those days, when you look at uh, the roles in an opera, all the high-voiced roles are just called soprano, including the castrato roles. So she was called a soprano in those days, as was Ottone, who was a castrato. One of the high points of L'Incoronazzi di Popea is Ottavia's heartbreaking monologue concerning her discovery that her husband Neroni has taken Popea as his mistress, and that Ottavia herself has been supplanted by this alluring creature. Monteverdi creates for her a kind of recitative lament. The music is set on text in what we might now find to be a very, very modern, astonishingly modern way, crafted as it is solely for the expression of what she's saying. Monteverdi's L'Incoronazione di Popea premiered in Venice in 1643, yet the directness of its emotional writing for the voice is entirely timeless and feels quite contemporary. So. We're going to begin with this remarkable solo from one of opera's earliest victims. And we're going to listen to a singer who never appeared at the Met, but was one of New York's most beloved singers due to her many highly anticipated recitals, Dame Janet Baker. And she'll be singing Disprezzata Regina, uh, Despised Queen. Uh, we have a translation of the text for you, if you'd like to use that to kind of heighten the experience. So here is one of opera's earliest victims, Ottavia.
It always astonishes me when I hear this, how, when you read the text, how contemporary her view of the way men treat women is, <laughs> and how freely Monteverdi expressed all of that, not bridled by later developments, which made things have to be more melodic. And uh, so expressive. Sometimes, as we'll see, the lines between villain and victim can be quite blurry while we're looking at that in La Clemenza di Tito across the street right now. Jealousy and the desire for position can drive some of Mozart's women to irrational acts of revenge. In his Idomeneo, Electra is one such woman, although she's not as outwardly scheming and murderous as Vitalia in La Clemenza di Tito. Um, Electra simply wants the emperor's son, Idamante, for herself, and with him the position of future queen. The fact that he doesn't love her pales in Electra's mind next to her desire and her ambition. In her first aria, Electra contemplates revenge against Ilya, who has captured Idamante's heart. But after uh, justice 
reigns, Idamante and Ilya are joined in matrimony, and they are ascending to the throne at the end of the opera together with Ilya as queen, Electra turns her desire for revenge in on herself as she pleads with the Furies to just take her in death. And this is one of opera's great early mad scenes, inspiring some of Mozart's most brilliant and challenging music for soprano, including a relentlessly high tessitura with a lot of high A flats and two ascents to high C at the end of the aria, in, which descend in a staccato kind of hysterical, giddy laughing figure. In the Mets, Jean-Pierre Ponel production, Electra's exaggerated state of frenzy is directed to be played in a kind of quasi-comic, campy manner, something absolutely possible in a typical over-the-top opera seria of, of the time, but with Mozart's added dimension and genius. So Electra is, for us, at the same time, an object of loathing, pity, and laughter, and nowhere more so than in the sensational aria which Ponel loaded with rather twitchy antics for the diva, combining the grand manner with low comedy. Wonderfully executed in this video by Elsa Fondenhafer from a recent revival at the Met last year. So we're going to watch her now as she sings Elettra's insane aria, Doreste Daiace. Gotta love it. 
Ponell really understood how to walk the line between comedy and drama. And if you haven't seen the Clemenza across the street, I think the last one is Saturday. It's really quite wonderful. Joyce Di Donato's Sesto is worth the trip alone. The theme of oppression and liberation through great bravery and endurance is so magnificently expressed in Beethoven's only opera, Fidelio, that the work has remained alive through identification on the part of the audience with the protagonists. Closer to our own time, it became a symbol at the end of World War II. It was the first opera Toscanini conducted with his NBC Symphony in 1944. In the conductor's opinion, Beethoven, like Toscanini himself, would have opposed Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini as well. Fidelio was the first opera performed in Berlin after the end of World War II in the only undamaged theater, the uh, Theater des Festens. At the time, Thomas Mann remarked, what amount of apathy was needed by musicians and audience to listen to Fidelio in Himmler's Germany without covering their faces and rushing out of the hall? Not long after the end of World War II and the fall of Nazism, conductor Wilhelm Furtwangler remarked in Salzburg in 1948, now that political events in Germany have restored to the concepts of human dignity and liberty their original significance, this is the opera which, thanks to the music of Beethoven, gives us comfort and courage. Certainly Fidelio is not an opera in the sense we are used to, nor is it a musician that Beethoven is for the theater or a dramaturg. He's quite a bit more. He's a whole musician and beyond that a saint and a visionary. That which disturbs us is not a material effect nor even the fact of the imprisonment. Any film, any film could have had the same effect. No, it is the music. It's Beethoven himself. It is this nostalgia of liberty, he feels, or better, makes us feel. This is what moves us to tears. Fidelio first came to the Met in 1884, the company's second season. It was a triumph, and it's over 230 performances since. In its history, it's attracted some of the very greatest singers to the title role and the role of the husband, Floristan, as well. Most memorable in my opera-going time was the incomparable John Vickers as Floristan, especially when paired with Leonie Riesenich's Leonora. The backstory of the opera, as we say on the Met broadcast, is that two years prior to the opening scene, the nobleman, Floristan, has been uh, imprisoned because he's attempted to expose certain crimes of the nobleman Pizarro. In revenge, Pizarro has secretly imprisoned Florestan uh, in the prison in which Pizarro is governor. The jailer of the prison is Rocco. Florestan's wife, Leonora, has come to Rocco disguised as a young boy called Fidelio and asked for employment in the prison. Uh, and Rocco has hired her. On orders from Pizarro, Rocco has been giving Florestan diminished rations until he's nearly starved to death. The tenor doesn't always look that way, but trust <laughs> me, it's the story. By the second act, the plan to kill Florestan has accelerated because there's news that the king's minister is making a surprise visit, and Pizarro does not want Florestan discovered in the prison. So he orders the execution to take place within the hour. Rocco descends to the dungeon with Leonora, disguised, of course, as Fidelio, and now is Rocco's trusted assistant. She's not certain even at this point whether this prisoner down there is her husband, Florestan. She tries to make out his features in the dark. She notices that he's barely alive. She's terrified, and then he speaks, and then she realizes that it is Florestan. Rocco uh, orders her as Fidelio to dig a grave for this man. And Pizarro then arrives and asks, is everything ready for the execution? Uh, he then, uh, Rocco orders Leonora Floristan, uh, Leonora rather, Fidelio, to, to uh, leave, not wanting this young boy to watch the execution. But instead, she just hides in the dark. And Pizarro launches this quartet we're about to hear with a chilling kind of relish. He wants Floristan to see who's killing him. His music possesses the character's trademark bombast, but also Beethoven's, as he thunders out his rage and intent on vengeance. But Leonora stops him dead in his tracks with her line, Tut es sein Weib, 
first kill his wife, soaring to a high B flat as she reveals her identity and pulls a, piston out on, a pistol out on Pizarro. The brass roars out, but now it's doubling Leonora's line, not Pizarro, uh, Pizarro's line. Suddenly, everything gets quiet. Trumpets are heard. The minister has arrived. And after a moment of astonished repose, the quartet resumes with thrilling force. Pizarro leaves defeated. Left alone, Leonora and Florestan are reunited. And he says to her, oh, my Leonora, what have you done for me? And she says, nichts, nichts, nothing, my Florestan. And they have this beautiful, beautiful duet, O Namenlose Freude, O Nameless uh, Happiness, Joy Beyond Expressing. Each voice rises on ecstatic lines of immeasurable happiness, each one saying and just caressing the other one's name on long sustained phrases, relishing a dream now realized before they reprise the melody with renewed astonishment and joyfulness. We're going to hear Leonie Riesenick as Leonora. John Vickers is Florestan. John McCurdy is Rocco. And Walter Berry as Pizarro. And they are led by uh, Karl Böhm in this amazing 1971 Met performance.
I've never understood the idea that Beethoven didn't know how to write for the voice, and it's a good thing he only wrote one opera. I wish he'd written like 50 operas. <laughs> Sometimes a victim becomes a victor, and one such character is Odabella, the heroine of Verdi's early opera, Attila. As with many of Verdi's earlier operas, the Italians love this work as much for its passionate music as for its political statement of triumph over oppressors as the Austrians were occupying Italy at that time, 1846. As Attila begins, the Huns have just conquered the city of Aquileia. Odabella, the daughter of its dead leader, is brought before Attila, who is astonished that this prisoner of war is a woman and one who has engaged in battle. He admires her beauty and her courage, and he offers her a reward. When she asks him for a sword as his re uh, her reward, he gives her his own. Secretly, she vows to use it to avenge her father, who is killed in battle by Attila. And she has a fantastic double aria entrance. In the aria part, the first part, she extols Italian women who bravely stand by their men in battle. In the cabaletta, with her new sword in hand, she privately expresses her view of the sword as a divine redeemer that will claim its victim and achieve justice. And in the end, that's exactly what happens. She dispatches Attila with his own sword. Verdi's ultra-demanding writing for a soprano in his early operas asks everything. And we're going to hear someone, a soprano in her prime, who had everything. Marisa Galvani had a very limited career at the Met. She appeared uh, as Norma on four hours' notice, making her debut replacing Shirley Verrett, who was ill. But at the New York City Opera, she was a huge star in the 70s and the 80s, and she still has a cult following, thanks to many documented live performances among them. This one of Odabella's entrance, Shana, recorded live at City Opera in 1981, sailing up and down the scale heroically Galvani crowns the cabaletta with an interpolated high E-flat, de demonstrating, well, her strength and Odabella's. So we're going to hear Santo di Patria from a city opera performance of Attila starring Marisa Galvani. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's a kind of virtuosic, early Verdi, dramatic color tour singing we don't get to hear very often anymore. You can find um, Galvani on YouTube. Uh, there's some live, uh, I had this friend who used to sneak a video camera into City Opera in the 70s uh, with a battery pack strapped to his leg. And uh, now he's posted some of Galvani's Nabucco on YouTube uh, so you can actually watch her in action as well as hear her. It's like a roll it was 1949, Carlos sang Nabucco once. Um, she never sang Atala, but, uh, but she did, yeah, Nabucco. It's the same kind of impossible music. Uh, in Verdi's later operas, there's often a complexity in characterization that can blur the line between villain and victim. King Philip of Spain in Don Carlo is certainly one. He's an oppressor of the Flemish people, even contemplates killing his own son when his authority is challenged. Yet he's torn and troubled, befriending the principled Rodrigo, who favors freeing the Flemish. Philip himself is victimized by the church, the horrifying Spanish Inquisition here in this opera personified in the character of the Grand Inquisitor. Verdi was no fan of the church, and in this unique duet for two basses, the implacable will of the clergy is expressed in the music of the sinister Grand Inquisitor. Uh, while Philip struggles to maintain his authority as king, trying to refuse the Inquisitor's demand that he murder his friend Rodrigo. As the enraged ancient blind clergyman is led out of the king's chamber, Philip cries out in desperation, so the throne must always bow to the altar. 
This is a most unusual German language version we're going to watch on video with the formidable veteran Basso Josef Grindel as Filippo and the astonishing and at that time very young, terrifying Finnish Basso Marti Talvela as the Inquisitor. It's conducted by Wolfgang Savalisch and it was uh, from 1965. I find, by the way, the, uh, the Germans were among those who in the 20s most, most early rediscovered Verdi operas that had been neglected by us, Don Carlo being one of them. I find uh, that the German language makes the Inquisitor somehow even creepier. <laughs> Doch jetzt bedroht ein Mensch unser Macht 
heiligen Bau. Er ist des Königs Freund, sein Inniger der Vertrauter, der versucht, er hat selbst ihn zum Werkzeug geboren. Es Carlos heimlich treiben, das dir die Ruhe raubt, ist gegen seinen Plan, nur ein Kind das Spiel. Ich, der Inquisitor, der von Gott eingesetzt ist, zu schützen den heiligen Glauben, der zu Gericht sitzt über die Macht der Welt. Yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? Tavala was quite a presence, as you could see, a towering presence. I saw him sing this, I think, about the same time in Italian at the Met, as well as Hunding, which was terrifying. And then they mounted a new Boris good enough for him, but he died rather young. He died young? Yeah. I heard him say Boris, I think. Yes, Boris, yes. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Yes. Yes. Yes, the, everyone gasped when he fell down the steps. Yeah, it was extraordinary. Yes. And he was also uh, very young when this was done. I mean, maybe 30. Fyodor Shalyapin was surely one of the most dynamic figures in 20th century opera. In fact, one can say with certainty that between Caruso and Callas, he was probably the most important figure, in certain ways a revolutionary. Like Kalas, this monumental Russian bass stressed vivid characterization in his physical and vocal portrayals. But unlike Kalas, he was prone to enormous exaggeration to achieve his effects, including bizarre costuming, makeup, stage deportment, and vocal coloring. Shalyapin came to the Met in 1907 at the age of 34, already a megastar. His debut as Mephistopheles in Boito's uh, opera was, for the most part, a sensational success, the audience cheering him wildly. And the critics were mostly favorable, with some exception being taken to his uh, naturalistic acting, which stressed the coarse nature of the devil. His next role, Don Basilio in The Barber of Seville, split the critics right down the middle half, were falling all over themselves in praise for his comic genius and the other more conservative ones, frankly, appalled. His Leporello was received more calmly, although some, again, considered him much too naturalistic for a Mozart singer. Thirteen years later, he returned as Boris Gudinov. Shalyapin's audience and critics had caught up with his style of performing, and he was found to be the very embodiment of every role he offered in Boris when he had a delusion and he looked to one side of the Met the whole audience looked to that side, <laughs> believing that, that he'd actually seen something. Uh, when he appeared as Mephistopheles in Faust, the Times critic Deems Taylor suggested that Shalyapin's towering portrayal of the devil was far greater than Gounod's opera. We're going to hear a live, in-house performance of uh, Mephistopheles' aria Le Vaudor from 1928, live at Covent Garden. It's really interesting, HMV, his master's voice, brought live recording equipment into Covent Garden starting in 1926, I think probably because Nellie Melba's farewell was going to be then, and they wanted to record that. And there's some 26 also Shalyapin clips. This 28 Covent Garden Faust was also recorded in parts by HMV. At this point, the bass was 55, his vocal power, his coloration still in evidence here. And it's just great to experience Shalyapin, not on a studio recording, but in live performance. Eugene Goosens conducts. <laughs> Good 
excerpt is from Ponchielli's La Gioconda, uh, which premiered at La Scala in 1876 and was actually the most successful Italian opera between Verdi's Aida and his Otello. Today, Gioconda is loved by some, condescended upon by others as an overblown spectacle with a formulaic plot. Actually, the librettist was the great Arrigo Boito, writing under the pseudonym of Tobia Gorio, which utilized all the letters of his name in a different order. The music is of variable quality, and it does include the rather endless and aptly named Dance of the Hours. The fourth act, though, for me, is a perfect opera in itself, a compact drama that could stand alone, kind of like the first act of Valkyrie. La Gioconda is the name of a street singer who lives on Judaica in Venice uh, with her blind mother, La Ceca, which means the blind one. Gioconda is in love with the nobleman Enzo, who's been banished from Ven Venice for political reasons, but returns disguised as a Dalmatian. The tenor, not the dog. <laughs> um, sometimes it's hard to tell. Enzo, uh, in turn, loves the married noblewoman Laura, and the evil villain, villain Barnaba, a spy of the state, is in love with Gioconda, who spurns his rather uh, blunt advances. Uh, in the course of the opera, Gioconda loses Enzo to Laura, loses her mother somewhere in a canal, <laughs> and is forced to kill herself in order to avoid having to consummate the relationship with Barnaba, to whom she's promised her body, if he will free Enzo from his political situation. And with all this, they call her La Gioconda, <laughs> the happy one. In this duet we're going to listen to, um, Barnaba has come to collect his prize, Gioconda's body, uh, in exchange for freeing Enzo. And uh, she stalls him. She says, uh, I have to adorn myself first, and uh, kind of adorns herself. 
and while he's not looking, takes out a dagger and stabs herself to avoid having to go through with this. He screams in her ear, last night your mother insulted me, so I drowned her. But fortunately, she's already dead and she doesn't hear this. Perhaps that's why she's called the happy one. Um, I have unearthed something from 1934, live, conducted by the great Tulio Serafin. Uh, it's, it's amazing performance snippets have begun to appear. Gina Chinya, fantastic dramatic soprano who had a great career at the Met as Norma and Aida, is the Gioconda, and Mario Baziola is the Barnaba. That cast that day also included Gigli as Enzo, Elena Nicolai as Laura, and the great bass Tancredi Pazero as Laura's husband, Alvise. Those were the days. So here's the final duet of La Gioconda, villain versus victim, 1934.
Interesting to hear the freedom that people took and the liberties that they took in those days when this Italian opera was sort of part of their theater that they were very accustomed to doing. Um, so that ends our first installment of Villains and Victims, and we'll pick it up next week. That was Ira Siff in part one of his lecture series, Villains and Victims. The Met may be on summer break, but we'll be continuing our podcast episodes throughout June, July, and August, sharing some of our sold-out lectures from this past season. We'll be back in two weeks with part two of this series. Until then, I hope you are enjoying the sunshine in these first few weeks of summer. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.